Hello and welcome to the TNW podcast, our show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature interviews with some of the most interesting people in this industry. My name is Andrei Degler. I am the head of media at TNW. And I am Linnea Algen, senior editor here at TNW. How's it been, Linnea? Doing pretty well, thank you, uh, considering the fact that it's the end of January. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with it, with it being the end of January? I'm looking forward to spring for one. Spring is still two months away. Uh, well, how do you mean two months? Not wait, it's, it's one month. Spring, spring comes in March, doesn't it? Well, officially, maybe calendar-wise, but the feeling of spring, I think we have to wait for another couple of months for. Well, that 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 may be the case, but I mean, we're still every day we're closer to the spring, and this is what uh, this is what keeps me going. This is very <laughs> true. Also, it gets lighter every day, and so I will latch onto your optimism and. <laughs> Yeah, and I can Look definitely feel it when you have some sort of a routine that's uh, something that always happens outside at the same time of the day, like, for example, me uh, picking up my kids or bringing them to the daycare. And you do see that it, it does actually get brighter and brighter and brighter. And that, uh, that that gives you some will to survive. Yeah, despite <laughs> the, the wobbliness of the rest of the world, some things do seem to still happen on schedule. Exactly. So don't fix it if it ain't broken, which is something I will get back to all the way towards the end of this show when we talk about uh, the learnings. But for now, uh, we have the rest of the episode to go through and we are going to discuss a whole bunch of things like a new European space mission, AI-generated podcasts, uh, some antiquated tech in German trains and so much more. And you will also hear a great interview. This one is with uh, Oskar Kneppers, uh, the CEO of the Amsterdam Center of Entrepreneurship or ACE. Uh, he's also founded several well-known local publications and one of the country's major startup accelerators, Rockstart, which is also where we met uh, several years ago when I was working there as the head of brand and community. So let's start uh, with the story that we covered. This was your choice uh, this week, Linnea. What, what did you choose? Yes, it was. So um, we're going back into space. Great, but week. no AI still. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but we're going back into space, or rather we're going to prepare to head back into space on a groundbreaking mission that's set to potentially change our understanding of the cosmos. It's called LISA. Mm -hmm. which stands for Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. Lisa, sounds better. <laughs> and it's the European Space Agency's ambitious project to detect and study the elusive cosmic ripples known as gravitational waves. Yeah, I'll, I'll wait for a moment and let you wrap your head around that. Okay, okay. So, but the LISA mission isn't just another space endeavor. It's the first scientific mission that's designed to observe these gravitational waves directly from space. Okay, wait, would it be very stupid uh, of me to ask what gravitational waves actually are? Is it like a common knowledge? I don't think anyone would, <laughs> would think that it's a stupid question, <laughs> unless you're an astrophysicist. Um, gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time, caused by some of the most violent and energetic processes in the universe. So they travel at the speed of light, and they squeeze and stretch anything in their path as they pass by. So Albert Einstein first predicted their existence in 1916 based on his theory of general relativity, but they were only first observed in 2015. And they are generated when massive objects accelerate. So this is from events, say, like the collision or merging of black holes or neutron stars or from supernova or even the rapid inflation of the universe immediately after the Big Bang. Now, LISA is not just one spacecraft, but a constellation of three. Mm. 
and they're going to fly in a triangular formation 2.5 million kilometers apart. That's more than six times the distance between Earth and the Moon. Wow. Again, I'll wait for a moment for you to wrap your head around that. That's a little bit hard to imagine, (laughs) really. These spacecraft will then use laser beams to measure the minute disturbances in space-time caused by these gravitational waves. Okay, I think we're entering uh, the uh, full-blown science fiction territory here. But like, okay, how how do you measure a disturbance in (laughs) space-time? So we we absolutely are, which is why I chose the story, uh, why I find it so fascinating. Um, But you use laser interferometers. So these split a laser beam and then send the halves of the laser beam along two long perpendicular arms. Mm -hmm. The beams then reflect back off of mirrors and they recombine where they came from. Now, normally they cancel each other out. But if a gravitational wave passes by, then the distance along one or both arms change ever so slightly. And this leads to a tiny but detectable change in the interference pattern of the beams. Now, in the LISA spacecraft, this will be measured by these floating golden cubes (laughs) (laughs) inside the spacecraft. Yes. Okay, and uh, and how are these golden cubes or whatever? How how is it actually better than uh, just doing the same thing from from the Earth? If they already were observed, I suppose from the Earth in 2015, like how how is it different then? Yeah, so you have ground-based observatories, and they can detect gravitational waves from massive events involving star-sized objects. However, Lisa, with this vast separation between the spacecraft, aims to detect lower frequency waves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could offer us a direct glimpse into events dating back to the very first seconds after the Big Bang, um, essentially the dawn of time as we understand it. And in this way, I feel like Lisa is more than just another space mission. It's really like a quest to decode the universe's most profound secrets. Wow. Now, I mean, it does feel like that exactly. And uh, are we going to live long enough to actually see the results of it? How long is it going to take? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> One never knows, but I ho- it's it's definitely a potential uh, because it, it is the European Space Agency's most complex and expensive project to date. Um, but it's planned for launch in 2035 aboard an Ariane 6 homegrown rocket. Um, but it's unclear exactly how long it will last for Wow. Now this this is really interesting. So let's just hope that we that we see the at least the first uh, results of this thing. I guess it's going to take many years until they even get information. This uh, the, the, this uh, three uh, three ships, right? I I don't know. I would imagine that I that it can be quite immediate after mm-hmm. they're up there and and set up and you read the data. But I guess it depends on how often these gravitational waves pass by. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not quite sure how, yeah, how no, ubiquitous exactly. they are in, in the space. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I guess in the in the grand scheme of things and the timescale of the universe, it will be a little blip. Yeah. So, okay, so it's going to take 11 years until it's uh, uh, planned to launch. So in 10 years, we're going to get someone from the USA on the podcast and uh, talk about uh, the actual nitty-gritty of this and how exactly they're going to make it work. Oh, I really hope so. And I hope that it will still be us as humans making the podcast. Ah. 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, this is actually being challenged as we speak. And this uh, brings us to the story that we did not cover just because it's not exactly our uh, remit. Uh, but this week, um, and I wanted to talk briefly about the funding round raised by a company that's called Wondercraft. Uh, this company was founded by uh, alumni of uh, Spotify and Palantir, of all places, and the startup is based in London, and it just received $3 million US dollars in seed capital to further build what they call the Canva of audio. So the premise of the company, uh, the premise of the app that company builds is that it wants to demolish the access barriers to spoken audio content production, and that's, uh, would that would include podcasts, uh, audiobooks, even guided meditations, uh, everything you can think of. And you can go on the website and see some examples of uh, how it could work. But the general idea is that you as a user just need to tweak a few LLM settings, uh, link to the source material and press the go button. And then a podcast or an advertisement or an audiobook or whatever else will be created for you by the model. Uh, so Wondercraft's tech is based on the AI voice generation and uh, text-to-speech platform by uh, another company that's called Eleven Labs, and it's also one of the investors in this round. Uh, I couldn't easily figure out which uh, LLM they're actually using for all the text generation, so if you know and you're listening to this, do ping me and let me know. I'm quite curious about that. So there are two things I wanted to say here. I don't want to go too much into detail, but first, the tech is actually quite impressive. I tried a couple of things on the Eleven Labs website, and I just uh, saw the uh, sample podcast. It's, it's interesting. And the text-to-speech has become so much better over the past few years, uh, definitely what you can get from it. And in conjunction with generative AI, it does sometimes look like absolute outright magic. Of course, there are issues, there are imperfections, uh, and I do want to believe that I can still easily hear when it's an AI reading an English text rather than a human. I definitely think I can hear it in my native languages, but uh, it's still, it's very impressive. But doesn't that also sort of lose the charm? Like you say, you can hear it in your native language, but when someone who's not a native speaker speaks English, for example, that's such a part of the charm or let's say a native English speaker with a different dialect and it gives it some personality and cultural diversity especially to something like a podcast and our voice and the way we speak is so distinctly part of what makes us well us so I, I'm just wondering what that will do to our experience as listeners as well and how we relate to what we are hearing um, but beyond that, what do you think a tool like this could mean for the podcasting industry? Yeah, I guess that really depends on whom you whom you ask. Uh, I have my my opinion, but if you look uh, at the Wondercraft website, so they talk a lot, of course, about how great it is that anyone can start uh, their own podcast uh, this way by creating it and automating. As I mentioned, they created a sample show themselves, and, and this show summarizes the top 10 posts on the Hacker News every day. Uh, they did admit themselves in the comment section of Hacker News that automating the entire production using the model is really hard, actually, so you need to have quite some additional skill to do that, but it is already possible. But then, and that's my personal opinion, I think that what comes out of this uh, kind of thing is just yet another podcast that's sort of mediocre. And that would be my fear as well. The space is already quite flooded. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, if this tool becomes sufficiently popular, which I, which I think it, uh, it, it may, uh, we are going to be flooded even more uh, with all those uh, sort of average uh, uh, podcasts. And I'm really not sure if uh, this is uh, what we need in this industry and in the media landscape in general. 
Because isn't it the whole idea of starting a podcast that you connect to the audience with your own voice, with your own intonation, your own writing, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It almost never is, but at, at least it's it's genuine, right? Yeah, and uh, anyway, it just seems to me that, uh, uh, okay, I, I don't want to rant too much about it because, I mean, as, as I said, the, the tech is perfect. Well, not perfect, but it's very, very, very interesting and very promising. But it seems to me that we, at some point, may see a sort of like a clear division, if you will, of the podcast industry into these two streams. One of those being more like handcrafted, authentic, human-produced shows. And then perhaps we will have a bigger a bigger stream of more like functional shows, which will give you, let's say, pure information like uh, this uh, summarized uh, article, summarized post on Hacker News or whatnot. And in a similar way, it would be the same. And it would be similar to, for example, how a newspaper app like the FT app would uh, offer you to read an article out loud instead of you reading it, right? So th that I think would uh, be something that, that, that we will see. But there's probably a niche uh, for both. But okay, one thing I want to tell you right now, we will not use these kind of tools for this show, except maybe for demonstration purposes. And we will clearly say that this is, this is what we are doing. Yes, I, I know what I as a listener would prefer. <laughs> There we go. But uh, you're also an expert in one of the areas uh, that uh, they mention on their website, which is meditation. And do you think uh, it is actually possible to create a meditation, like a guided meditation script, using this this kind of tool? Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to call myself a, an expert. I, I dabble, but I find it difficult to believe with the technology today, I won't say anything about where it can be maybe in 10 years time, but with the technology today, um, I don't believe that I would respond as a mm -hmm. meditator to, to the voices that I have heard thus far being AI generated. However, that being said, there is so much content on various meditation apps, etc., that do sound quite impersonal. And if mm -hmm. people are responding to that, then, then I don't think that maybe an AI voice would be much different. But I think that the key to meditation is transmitted through the, ex the lived experience of the person who's guiding it. And until that experience could be had by an AI, there will always be something missing. That's my personal take. No, this makes a lot of sense. And this is something that I have no idea about. So this is it's very fascinating always to listen to uh, what you what you have to say on this. Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna watch this space anyway because it is going to be one way or the other quite important for the podcasting industry. I think quite as important as, for example, when uh, Spotify came into the space and uh, created the entire exclusive podcast uh, situation that had never uh, been all that uh, widespread and popular before that. Okay, so that's uh, that's and that's the end of uh, my uh, rant of the week, and now we can move towards something more exciting, which is something that we learned over the past week. Uh, what was it for you, Linnea? So I learned, or rather, I, I had heard it before, but I relearned it this week um, as I was talking to the CEO of Blue Force, which is a Finnish cryogenics company that builds the fridges that make quantum computing possible. Wow. So, you know, when you think about quantum computers, you think of this sort of golden chandelier structure. Mm -hmm. That's the fridge. 
That's the cooling system. The actual it looks so nice, though. It looks, yeah. looks very quantum. <laughs> it does indeed, but, but because that's what your brain has associated with it, right? But the quantum computer itself is actually a tiny little chip that sits at the very bottom of the structure. Mm. However, you need all of this cooling that to be able to read anything off of the qubits so that the qubits stay in a stable um, state and there's mm. not so much noise and interference. Anyway, I won't go into too much detail about this because you'll be able to read all about it soon coming up on the website. But what I found really fascinating is, of course, they're in Finland, in Helsinki, and Finland does have a great tradition in terms of engineering, in cryogenics, um, etc. But as with all highly skilled technical um, sectors, there is the issue of finding talent. Now, when it comes to cryogenics and these types of fridges, you have a lot of micro-engineering going on. Right. So in order to find talent suited particularly to these tasks, they collaborate with the Finnish School of Watchmaking. Finnish School of Watchmaking. Yes. So first of all, uh, one thing I learned right now, Finnish School of Watchmaking exists. Yes, it does indeed. <laughs> um, and these are one of the ways in which this very traditional manual sort of skill can then be transferred onto something that's highly technical, technological, and and part of the future, and I just found it, um, I found it really fascinating. And that also speaks to the kind of ecosystem that I have seen, particularly in Finland, um, how they support each other and collaborate with academia and mm-hmm. across sectors, etc. And really, um, yeah, find the the best of different elements and come together. Right. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And we're going to talk much more about the academia and uh, the way that it uh, interacts uh, with the uh, with the business uh, field in the interview with uh, with Oscar uh, in in a couple of minutes. Uh, I also wanted to mention something that I learned and as you may have noticed, I really love old even sometimes antiquated uh, tech and also examples of it being still used in sort of unexpected places. Like watchmaking. Yeah, like, exactly, like, like watchmaking. So so you had the hardware part and I have the software part of it. So this week, uh, a German tech blog uh, noticed an interesting job ad on the website of Deutsche Bahn, which is the German railway operator. Oh, yes, we know Deutsche Bahn. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I think some of your issues with Deutsche Bahn are going to be explained within the next minute. Because the company is looking for a system administrator that can look after computers running Windows 3.11. That does indeed explain (laughs) quite a bit of my gripe. So if you were into computers in the early 1990s, you probably can remember uh, this operating system. And I do definitely remember it as well, though I was probably like about 10 years old at the time, but I definitely remember having a computer at home that ran uh, Windows 3.11 for work groups. That was a really interesting time. But like, okay, now is the year 2023. Uh, Windows 3.11 hasn't been supported by Microsoft for at least 20 years now, I think 22 to be precise. It's 2024, Andrew, but uh, other than that, yes. Sorry. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's indeed the case. I mean, okay, it's it's thirtieth of January, twenty twenty four, which means that, and I think the first month of the year, like you can use both uh, both numbers, and uh, you can be forgiven. Yeah, so, I think we get a bit of cognitive leeway. Yeah, for the time space continuum. So two more days. So today and tomorrow, and then from the first of February on, this will be unforgivable and unacceptable. But for now, I hope I get I get a pass. You get a pass. Thank you. So, uh, but anyway, it's been. 
very many years uh, since Microsoft uh, had stopped uh, official support uh, for this uh, operating system. But judging by the job ad, uh, this uh, Windows 3.11, but also MS-DOS, of course, is still used in regional and high-speed uh, Deutsche Bahn trains in the driver's display system to show real-time data on uh, on all the vehicles' uh, systems, uh, uh, how everything is working, uh, the travel data, and so on and so forth. And I mean, of course, it's not the only example of companies not fixing things that aren't broken, and there are lots of those, of course, but this one definitely uh, brought back quite some childhood memories uh, for me. And uh, before you ask, no, I'm not applying. Uh, I don't think I would be able to. I don't think I remember it uh, well enough. But it's really fascinating to know that these kind of things are still in existence and still running very important systems out there. And here they say AI will take our jobs. <laughs> yeah, find me an AI that will be able to admin a Windows 3.11 <laughs> machine now. <laughs> Now let's move forward. Let's move forward to today's featured interview. And this, as I said, is with Oscar Kneppers, uh, the CEO of the Amsterdam Center for Entrepreneurship. We know it as ACE. Uh, he's been part of the Dutch entrepreneurial ecosystem for several decades now having created and run a few very important publications uh, on the market, but also co-founded the startup accelerator Rockstart, which is still around now. So Oscar has a vision now of how to effectively spin out startups out of academia and not just in Amsterdam, but potentially on a much larger scale. So stay with us and check this one out. Oscar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. And good to see you again. Yes, great to see you again. It's been it's been a few years uh, since uh, we saw each other last time. We used to work together uh, back when I was at Rockstart. So can you fill myself and everybody else uh, listening to this in about uh, what's been happening with you over the past few years, but also before that, what's your general background, let's say? How did you come to where you are right now? General background is, I guess, I'm driven by curiosity and a lack of fear for a long time, especially. And uh, maybe it's ignorance. I don't know. Uh, so, I, so I started in media. So that was, I guess, the first part of curiosity and not having any fear to ask questions. And uh, and somehow I ended up at the uh, the school for journalism, the Acad academy for journalism in. 1984, yes. And the two years before, I haven't even thought of journalism. And my mom sent me to this uh, psychology uh, selection for education uh, institute. And I loved the fact that someone was actually asking me what I wanted to do. Because before that, I just wanted to be either a drummer in a band or a skateboarder. And then my mom sort of woke me up from that dream and said, you can't live from that. Obviously you can, but then, <laughs> so you need a real something. And she sent me to this institute and people started asking me questions. I was like, wow, this is cool. So really, people really interested. And end of the day, they said, okay, we have uh, three advisors for you. Mm -hmm. The first is the Academy for Journalism. Second is the, the Royal Dance Academy in Rotterdam. And the third was something with human resources, which my dad did originally. And I was like, okay, well, I think I can dance, but... That's not for me. And journalism sounds really cool. So what is, what is it until? And it's like, yeah, asking questions. So mm -hmm. I, I enrolled in journalism uh, and I thought, this is my profession. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it so much. I was, and I also loved the student life that much that I fucked it up. And in the first year I got kicked out after 10 months. And, and I was like, and that was the first time in my life. Remember I was 18 or maybe 19 at that point. And the first time in my life that I felt, hmm, 
actions have consequences. I felt that I didn't <laughs> work hard enough. I ignored English. I ignored mm. physical exercise because you needed the study points for that. But I was like, hey, I'm not here to to learn English. My English is good enough. And uh, physical exercise is for douchebags, right? So <laughs> I, I, I was like smoking and hanging out with people. And so I got kicked out. And then I decided, okay, well, at least the cannon is pointed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be a media. So I started working for my then father-in-law, who's sort of just started a small newspaper on specifically real estate and um, interior design somewhere in uh, Brabant, where I grew up in the south of the Netherlands. And he said, okay, write a piece about comparing uh, mortgages. And I was like, okay, well, I have to start somewhere. And that was the first article I published for like a real audience back in 1985. And that's the start. So then I really worked from scratch all the way up to at some point uh, having a media company and um, and selling it. And for me, that was like the the classic, uh, maybe for most people, a classic career. I loved media. I loved asking questions. I loved digging into stuff and understand stuff. Uh, and somehow at some point it changed uh, after I sold my second media company. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, maybe it's like this. I when I started my first company, uh, I moved from working as a an editor for another company mm -hmm. and I started my own company and it felt like I'm using a company to be an editor or to be a publisher and working on my second company. So that was Emers, my first mm -hmm. company, and the second company was Bright. And working on Bright, I felt, hey, it's, it's the other way around. Something shifted. I'm working as an entrepreneur and I'm using a publishing company to build a company, but mm -hmm. it, it, it flipped. And that meant for me that at, at that point I felt, hey, that means I can do just about anything. As long as it's uh, entrepreneurial, it's fine. And it doesn't have to be a publishing company. Long story short, that ended up in Rockstar, where we met, I guess, in 2014, 15, so 17, 17, 17, maybe 17, just before I left, right? And that was completely different. But the funny thing is with Rockstar, for me, it always felt Rockstar feels like a media company. The only thing we're not doing is media. Yeah. And I tried to analyze that. And I came to this tripod of my experience uh, is strong brand, vibrant, vibrant community, consistent story. That's what media do. And that's what Rockstar did very well. And I guess that's what I'm doing right now, working for the universities of Amsterdam, building a strong brand, Telling a relaying a consistent story and work on a vibrant community. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, but just to mention that in the nineties you also you ran the Dutch edition of Macworld, right? So yeah, that was yeah, your, yeah. Your, that your was, editor job. That yes, I so in in this first job that I worked at this little newspaper at my uh, father-in-law, I got hired by the company, and within a couple of months, the owner, which was like this classic entrepreneur, stood on the table and said. Ladies and gentlemen, dramatic pause. We're going to automate this thing. And he introduced the Mac. And this is 1985, remember. So this was a year after the, the launch of the Mac. And there were all these like these people working in graphic department that had to did everything by most of it mm -hmm. by hand, right? Um, and he said, and Oscar will be the systems manager. I never touched the computer before in my life. I, I was working on a typewriter and I thought, don't say no, see what happens. So I took one home and I was completely addicted within 15 minutes uh, <laughs> to the Mac. And for me, it felt like an epiphany. I, I was working and playing with the thing. 
And I felt like this will change everything. And uh, so I started buying Macworld. And at some point I thought, well, if I'm in media and I love to make magazines, so I moved from newspaper to a trade magazine on mm -hmm. a completely different subject. And my my uh, I guess that I felt good enough about making a magazine. So there was just one magazine I really wanted to make, and it was, that was Macworld. And then the publishing company that published Macworld in the U.S., bought a company in the Netherlands and decided to rebrand Macintosh magazine into Macworld. And mm -hmm. I was like, as my name on it. But I didn't get hired for that. I got hired for Computer World. Mm -hmm. And a year later, the uh, Computer World folded and the then editor-in-chief of Macworld said, come join me. And mm -hmm. that was in, so my first title, I guess, my first issue was 1994. January wow. and that was the ten year celebration of the Mac. So that was my first. Yeah. Wow. This is this is really and interesting. I, I loved it. I loved it. Really. I was playing with like if I look around where we are right now at the TNW mm -hmm. headquarters, it's it's cables, it's machines, it's people testing stuff and writing about it. And that's what we did. And this is like early, early nineties. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. It's really nice. Look, I just uh, thought of a question. Uh, so throughout your journey then, so you were so mesmerized by technology at that point. Uh, so, and since then you, you've created an accelerator for, for technology startups, and now you are in the Amsterdam Center of Entrepreneurship. How has your own feelings, how have your own feelings towards technology changed over these 30 years? Yeah, it's maybe, we just discussed the fact that I'm using an iPad yeah. uh, as a working machine, and I and you asked me why, and I said, well, I, I want to work on something that, that serves as a dashboard to everything that you need to understand or read, but I don't want a working machine that feels like homework, and I really want to use something. So I guess that in, in that sense, when I was uh, mid-30s, 40, around your age, um, you wanted more, bigger, faster, um, and now I want lighter, less, travel light, keep it simple. And I've, I've seen so many things in tech, I guess, that at some point there's nothing fits in your head anymore and you just settle with the stuff that you love. And for mm -hmm. me, it's still the Mac, of course, or, or Apple stuff. So my fascination is the same, but then when I started this thing called WebWorld, this is way, let's say, 95, this was the first 24-hour uh, IT news service in the Netherlands. Hmm. Um, and I was like on it every second of my waking day. And uh, I, there was nothing more uh, that I love more, nothing that I love more than thinking about technology, reading about it, trying it, playing with it, and that changed. And of course, back then, everything was about the promise of technology. Mm -hmm. Today, we're experiencing the proof of technology. Most of the things that we sort of wanted or uh, projected into the future, it's all been easily met, all those things that we projected, uh, way over it even. Um, and it's it changed our lives as we expected. Maybe worse, better, more, but it did. With a whole lot of unexpected additions to that, I suppose. Yes, yes. Yeah. But do Good you things still, and bad things, of yeah, course. Yeah. yeah, of course. But do you still like look into all the new technology trends? I know, generative AI, everything no. else. Yeah, of course I look into it. I play with it. Uh, I talk to some people, but there are not many things that really seduce me in the way that the Mac mm -hmm. did originally or the internet did. I had the same epiphany with uh, uh, discovering the internet in 93. 
that was the same thing. I felt like goosebumps and I felt this will change everything. And it did. That I don't have. I, I feel a complete lack of interest in hmm. Bitcoin stuff. Like Boris and I, as we just discussed uh, one of your uh, uh, former colleagues, we were always joking about Bitcoin stuff. It never, it never took my interest. And most of the things I'm sort of, okay, this will change. It's like AI, generative AI. It's obvious that will change a lot, but nothing that really grabs me in the same way. And maybe it's overkill after mm. all those years. I don't know. So at the end of the day, you are more interested and focused on entrepreneurship. Totally. That's what I love. Absolutely. Yes. So, and most entrepreneurship involves technology, of course, in especially what especially we do now. in academia, especially now. Technology is an enabler, but it's, it's not the goal, but it's an enabler. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that technology made it possible. It made it easier, cheaper than ever and faster uh, to build a company. Maybe you remember back in the days at Rockstar, we would, it was so easy to start a company. Yeah. And if, if you have a real strong vision and some stamina, able to find bright people around you to believe in that, you can build a company in 24 hours. And it's still the case. I love that about technology. Yeah. So now you've been a bit less than a year. You've been the CEO of uh, Amsterdam Center of Entrepreneurship, ACE. Is it, any, is it similar to Rockstart, the accelerator that you created and ran for a long time? No. It's, well, it, it is similar when it, if, if you boil down to the essence, we have programs to help people build a company early stage. That's the same. It's a completely different sound completely different DNA. And um, the reason I'm involved in ACE is that when I was hired, I said, okay, I really want to do this, but you really have to sort of leave me for a while, for a couple of months to gather information, to talk to everyone involved, because I think the potential is way bigger than we're using today. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, let me sort of rebuild the whole thing. And that's what I'm doing right now. So we're moving ACE to a new chapter, new new life uh, phase, and that's going to be campus with AE, as in uh, academic entrepreneurs. So mm -hmm. ACE is the Amsterdam Center for Entrepreneurship with four shareholders, the University of Amsterdam, the Vrije Universiteit, uh, the, the University of Applied Sciences and Amsterdam UMC, like the two academic mm -hmm. hospitals. And all those institutes, these knowledge institutes, have all different kinds of initiatives to support entrepreneurship. And my goal is to bring it all together under one brand, one umbrella brand, software, as you will, uh, if you will, to, to mm -hmm. load in all these hardware systems. But it's about building a, an integrated, entrepreneurship program on all locations, all campuses in Amsterdam under the campus brand. Do you even need this? Like, why not just let all these people, students, researchers, and so on, do their thing, become entrepreneurs on their own, spin off the academia world and everything? Well, when I was just at ACE for a couple of months, Maybe a month I asked someone, so so how many people are working on research that might be sort of interesting to build a company from, mm -hmm. to distill a, a company from? Is it like 200, 300, 600 maybe even? And this guy was looking at me and he said, well, I think it's around 11,000. I said, no, no, I mean, Amsterdam only. I said, yes, Amsterdam only. And I said, are you kidding me? Wow. So if, and when I was like doing my rounds around the city talking about this, 
people could name maybe five companies that sort of were generated in academia in Amsterdam at the universities. And I thought that's not a lot. If if we have 11,000 researchers, and, and some of it, of course, is fundamental research. Mm -hmm. You can't build something from it. But there are many thousands that you can uh, distill a company from. So I was like, okay, if this is the case, then we have this huge sea of possibilities. We have the smartest people in the world working on so many different beautiful subjects. And I'm, and that's not just AI and quantum. That's all, we all have that, but it's also humanities and economics and law and business, et cetera. We have the biggest problems of our lifetime. So we have the smartest people in one city solving so many problems. This, this, this needs to be done. And I need to build a system that's able to bring all this knowledge, this talent, uh, to markets and and also I always use this uh, example uh, that's from this book from Matsukato uh, and she holds the iPhone and says okay 70% or 60 or 70% of all technology in this iPhone has been uh, developed uh, with public money 100% is going to private people shareholders does make sense no it doesn't I, I agree it doesn't and if Apple would pay like the most taxes in the world, but they probably are not. Probably. Uh, so the thing is, it needs to make sense for people to work on something, to research something. And the universities in, in uh, the Netherlands have three obligations. First is, of course, education. Second is research. And the third is valorization. Mm -hmm. I hate the word. I don't know a better <laughs> translation, but valorization in Dutch. And it means bring it back to society. So you, there's many ways you can do that. You can give a patent or uh, an invention to KLM or to mm -hmm. Rabobank or anyone else, and they can use it, and that might be working. But I think it's way better to help people build it themselves within this academic community mm -hmm. uh, where you can build teams. You have so many diverse knowledge people with diverse knowledge. You can build teams. It's it's easier than at Roxa, right? Roxa was the whole world, mm -hmm. and this is just Amsterdam, and we have over 100 nationalities, people from all over the place. So I think we have all the ingredients to build really successful teams. Right. But like, why does the ecosystem need you? Like, what's the, what's the big challenge here? Why are there so many thousands of researchers, but so few companies? That I don't know. What I do know is that th if this is only Amsterdam, that every city with a university has the same access to this mm -hmm. giant magic source and have the same problem. So I think that fragmentation for one is, is a big problem. If, you, if you're not able to find your ways, so even as a curious student or as a, a smart researcher, how do you do that? You just don't know. You're sitting in this lab and you're working on your research paper, you publish it and then people quote it and you go back mm -hmm. to research. There's no uh, incentive, there's, there's not a culture. It's something else. Uh, and I think that if you were able to sort of bring that closer together, yeah, we would be able, we should be able to, let's say, distill even 1% or 2% of this huge base, knowledge base uh, to build companies from. So why is it that way? I don't know. Some technical universities really have done well. Mm -hmm. MIT and also in the Netherlands, TU Eindhoven, the University in Twente and Enschede, yeah. uh, Delft, of course. Yes, Delft. 
it's it's really good examples, but they they have the focus of one university and especially specifically more hardware oriented knowledge, yeah. I guess, in technical than in all these different faculties that we have in, in Amsterdam. But uh, it's it's starts somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And it and it starts with culture, access, awareness, and a love for being able to bring something to life. Yeah. So ACE is an incubator. Are you still going to apply the same model of uh, incubator accelerator? Instant, yeah. So ACE is now ACE now involves two programs. One is called Explore. Explore mm -hmm. is sort of PhD students play with the basic ingredients of entrepreneurship. It's great. It's young people. And you know that, right? You see people tinkering around with something. At some point, they see the light and you feel like, oh, this, <laughs> this, could, this could be great. That's one part, and I think it. We owe it to people to being able to show that, and in the best scenario, those people would at some point say, "Hey, I want to build a company," and then they come into the incubator that mm -hmm. we're running today. We have two pro programs here, and it's, it's sort of general. It's it's not specific a vertical. It's mm -hmm. general academic uh, incubator, and it is a little more than playing with it. We build companies with them, but we don't invest in them apart from uh, time and attention and bringing them in contact with mentors, etc. So far, it looks the same as any other accelerator. Mm -hmm. But the difference is it's also um, we're at a distance. We're not shareholders. We can give them something, but we're not a part of the company. And for me, that you don't have to be a part of the company, but it needs to have more urgency. And now it's just a little bit relevant, mm -hmm. but it's, yeah, I, I don't know translate for the word vrijblijvend in the Netherlands. I don't know how you would translate it, but the, the, it's it's sort of no strings attached mm -hmm, kind mm -hmm. of relationship. And I want to have way more urgency. So my plan is to build a large fund that we invest in those companies as Amsterdam, as an ecosystem, at, as campus, to make sure that everything is in this revolving fund, this evergreen fund, that mm -hmm. if we make money with it, it flows back to the next generation. And that would make sense. And that is also yeah, giving back to the to the city where it's, it's coming from. Is this something you have seen working elsewhere? Many examples. Of course, Stanford mm -hmm. is well known for that. Uh, MIT is known for that. Harvard, in a way, mm -hmm. diff different area, but still is known for that. So. It works, but what I feel in many cases, it's fragmented. And of course, the tempo in academia is slower than it is in the market. So it's harder for people to stay in the system, I guess. And my goal is to make it attractive for people to even consider building a company. Right. And you've been part of the Dutch entrepreneurial ecosystem for a very long time. So how how has it changed, like over all these years? Like, what do you what, what do you see as I know main trends, if you will? My, my first uh, my first impulse was to say, well, uh, unfortunately, not nothing much, <laughs> <laughs> nothing much changed. I'm still here, sitting at the TNW in the middle of the city. It's it looks like a startup environment. That is the same, but of course, it is so much more common. When I started uh, Rockstar, when I started my first company, most people thought you were crazy, right? You, starting a company is like a yeah. certain <laughs> death. That has changed. I think people now are so, so, the goal of Rockstar was not only to build companies, but also inspire people to take their fate into their own hands and do something with it. That has changed, definitely. It's easier, it's cheaper, it's more accepted. It also, 
for some people, it's really hard and they want to do sort of the lifestyle entrepreneur. Okay, mm -hmm. It's not in every case, it's always the best, but it is at least people will consider it uh, earlier or faster than they would uh, 10, 20 years ago. So that, that has changed. Access to knowledge has changed. Mm -hmm. It's way better. Access to money has changed. Okay, most startups are still struggling for money, but really the ecosystem is professionalized and it's way better. And even government involved here in the Netherlands with, with TechLeap, it's stuff has changed, obviously. Yeah. So access, credibility, intelligence, all that is in, in the package right now. Yeah. And in terms of technology, what do you think what do you think are the strengths of Dutch or European even ecosystem? Where do you where do you see the future if you look at different technology verticals? That's a hard question to answer because, of course, if I look at the ecosystem where I'm that I'm serving with, mm -hmm. with campus, it's um, of course we have very good uh, on Science Park, like the quantum, mm -hmm. the AI is is top of top notch. Most people say that it's not something that I. It's the what people keep giving me back globally, and of course it's attractive to keep running behind that rabbit, like the big promise of AI and quantum. Mm -hmm. But there's so many faculties and, uh, and and studies that you can distill companies from. So, you, you know, it's I wanted to stay away from, it needs to be technology, it needs to be cutting edge. There's, there's so many things that you can do with knowledge that you can transform into companies. So it's, it's hard, I, I couldn't tell. I wish I knew I have to right now to define what sort of the seven main uh, directions are that we mm -hmm. start with. Uh, and for instance, in Amsterdam, they say, we, we don't want to do just AI. It needs to be human-centered AI. Okay, so what does that entail? Uh, and how is that different from what they're developing in China? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm now sort of puzzling that so to figuring out what should we focus on. But in the end, I want to make an to build or develop an agnostic system that serves everyone that wants to build something uh, mm -hmm. coming from academia. And do you have a time frame for all these plans? Yes, I even have uh, uh, quantifiable goals. So um, I think, so I started last year. I now have presented my general vision to all layers. Mm -hmm. So the people involved, the the boards, the advisory boards, all that. Uh, so that's covered. Um, most colleagues in the system know about these plans about campus. Uh, so I said, okay, I think I'd, I would be able, so we're launching in the academic year 24, 25. So mm -hmm. that's, let's say September. This is the first time I actually talk about it outside of university and then prove it that we can run it and have 1% of those research companies coming out of the year in 27. So that is 24, 25, 26, that's three years. And if that works, double the quantity mm -hmm. and have, let's say, being able from 2030 onwards to build and grow a family of a thousand academic companies every five years. Should be able to do that. Wow. And the fund? To start with 150 million, I think we should be able to triple that in three years uh, so that we have it running in 2030, half a, half a billion. But I would, I would probably want to invite mm -hmm. all universities in Netherlands. So the uh -huh. brand I'm building, Campus with AE, 
is sort of ready. Like most uh, of the university incubators I talk to uh, are dealing with the same problem of fragmented uh, ecosystems. So um, it would be great if we could do all that. It's yeah, it's long term, but that's the good thing about these these university academic machines. They they roll slower than we know, but it's really focused on long term, and I believe in long term, really do. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, Oscar. Thank you so much for joining today, and good luck with everything you're doing with uh, Ace and Campus. Thank you very much. Once again, huge thanks to Oscar for finding the time uh, to come on the show. And this is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show, and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us pretty much everywhere. Music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. Feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions. We are always at podcast at thenextweb.com. I am Andre Degeler. I'm Linnea Ogden. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye.